Hi guys, welcome back to the original judo podcast. Delighted this week as I'm joined by someone who has had many roles in judo. As a player, he was a I mean, I'm definitely going to get this wrong, but he was a double British champion. As a coach, he's coached world and Olympic medalists um, for GB and for Wales. And most recently, or the last eight years, he has been CEO of Welsh Judo before very recently moving over to academia and uh, potentially stepping away from some of the on the mat stuff. But I'm sure you'll correct me as we go on. Delighted to welcome uh, Coventry Judo's Darren Warner to the show. Darren, how are you doing? Thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Um, actually, thanks for referring to me as Coventry's uh, Darren Warner, because it's been a long time since anybody <laughs> said that. But um, you're old enough um, to know that. So, yeah, thanks. Well, it's been about <laughs> 20 years since I've been to Coventry Judo Club, but you were yeah. coaching at the time. And, um... Yeah, no, and um, it's something I'm really proud of. You know, I, I loved it there. And that, yeah, I wouldn't be that was that was my apprenticeship really of when Neil was running the full-time center I was there as an athlete and then once he was the Olympic coach I basically started taking the sessions when he wasn't there which was most of the time um which was pretty difficult when you're one of the players and then I, I kind of yeah just started coaching I started my own coaching business both in schools and I built the club so we sort of restarted Coventry Judo Club then with an under eights and an over eights and um it just grew. So by the time I left, there was about 15 classes a week, judo sessions a week um, that I had to hand over. So, yeah, it was good to and now to see where it is now um, is great. So, yeah, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> you've uh, you've had many roles, but how did you get started in judo um, way, way back? It, yeah, um, I guess like probably a lot of a lot of us. Um, I was always getting into fights and I loved grappling and stuff like that. And I, I think in my head, I thought I was protecting other kids that were getting bullied. But <laughs> I think I, would be, I used to get told off a lot at schools. And I used to think, I used to remember telling my mom, like, I'm just misunderstood. It's not me at all. It's these other kids, you know. So they took me to judo, I think, for discipline um, and to, for self-control. And suddenly I was like, what? So I'm allowed to grab people around the head and wrestle them to the ground. Like, this is the aim, you know. So it was kind of a perfect match. I did learn the discipline and self-control that they wanted. Burnt a lot of energy, um, but ultimately was allowed to do what I'd been getting told off for for the last five years. So I started when I was, I started when I was 10 um, at Worcester Judo Club, actually. Um, and I was really lucky that. Worcester was a club where you paid quarterly. It had its own dojo. It was above a bingo hall at the time. And I think they've only recently moved from there. But um, yeah, you used to pay for a quarter and you could go every night. So it was like beginners on a Tuesday, I think, Tuesday and Saturday morning. And then it was intermediates and the competition. But even once I was on the competition classes, I'd just be going back with the beginner classes and helping. And maybe that that was the start of my coaching journey, I guess, because the coach used to be like, it's your job to make everybody feel really welcome when they arrive. You know, if you've got a player here that makes, you know, and I, so I, I definitely learned a lot of lessons then that I put into practice with Coventry Judo Club. But it was just a really nice club. Um, and then a lot of the, a lot of the, the players from there actually went full time. And so I yeah. guess I saw a pathway, which was originally to Kendall. Um, so I left home at 16. And again, I, oh, wow. yeah, I was an only child. And I remember 
remember my mom being devastated that I was leaving. And I, you know, I mean, I look back now at 16, my eldest is 12. And to think he might leave home in four years time is just, just not possible really. But she was devastated. And I remember thinking like, why are you so upset? I'm clearly, you know, going to be fine. Um, so yeah, I left home at 16 to, to go and live in the Lake District and run around mountains and stuff like that. And then, uh, and then that closed after four months. So I went just at the wrong time. So I went oh, in. Really? It was, is that yeah. when like Kendall kind of yeah it closed originally think, closed? Yeah, so I'd close. It closed about five six months after I arrived. Not because <laughs> of me. Nothing to do with me. Um, I think I think Tony McConnell, who was like the reason I went there for really. Eckersley had got a, an Olympic medal in '84. It was '89 when I went, so it's a long time ago. But I think McConnell had only planned for two Olympic cycles, and then it was '89. It was the year after Seoul um and it closed I, I don't I've never really found out why um but yeah so I just went to Coventry then and Neil Adams had just started a full-time center so I went there um and yeah like you said won the British championships a few times I look back now and think yeah I was pretty good but never really give it any thought do you once you retire so much more I don't know yeah I think my athletic career was just more a grounding of understanding judo I remember it was just about trying to be the best that you could be and the ambition was to be Olympic champion and one of the things I never forgot when working with elite athletes like yourself is that if somebody said you could win the Olympics and die the next day I mean there's not even a decision to be made you're like sign me up where do I sign you know <laughs> um and I think that was the one thing is that I just had that level of commitment for 12 years and it was, you know, I had people like Graham Randall who who won the Worlds to to compete with and beat him sometimes mm -hmm. and stuff. And it was a really good era um, that where I was in the mix, but it was really competitive. Danny Kingston as well, who's, you know, one of the yeah, best yeah. players in the world. So I felt like I was just, I never quite got to where I could. And so maybe I was still searching for that after my career, really, which led me to coaching. But I just feel that it's more natural for me to be putting others first and when you're an athlete you have to be really selfish and put yourself first and actually coaching comes much more naturally to me than being an athlete I think so so yeah coaching happened quite naturally I did it to support my training but some of the best hours of my week were coaching kids you know and um, the good thing about Coventry is because the it was a permanent matter and it grew very quickly um, I was coaching five or six different age groups including the elite seniors yeah. in the space of a week often one hour after the other so I started to realize just how my coaching pedagogy changed based on age and stage and I had the opportunity to try different things and so yeah it was I was just very fortunate to have that kind of experience and then I really always had that feeling of giving back so a lot of the school stuff I would do would be like with special needs you know, um, children and stuff like that. So again, I didn't think that at the time, but actually that really developed your coaching skill. You know, I remember um, there was one child, I think he had a Spurgis and I, he'd been naughty. And I was like, do you want to get, would, would you like to go to the corner and, and sit out? And he said, no, I wouldn't. And I was like, I'm not asking you. And he went, yeah, you are. <laughs> you are asking me. And I was like, oh yeah, I am asking you. Um, okay, go and sit in the corner. And he just went and sat in the corner, which I wouldn't do now, but just in terms of use of language at the time and making me reflect. And I was just like, well, yeah, you need to be really 
clear you know so um it's funny how times change but I now realize that they all gave me skills that I needed further on you know so by the time I was at Welsh Judo I'm then responsible for equality diversity and inclusion within the whole organization you know but I've got a lifetime of experiences to to draw upon you know and realize why it's so important so yeah it's um everything's happened pretty naturally really I've never I've had a grand plan of I'm going here or there um yeah so very lucky no I love that and I think I've got questions about pretty much every stage of your judo life cycle um I think talking about Coventry judo again I think Neil had started it up um obviously double Olympic silver incredible athlete world champion um by the time I again it was part of the pathway at the like certainly in the Midlands as you at some point go and do Randori at Coventry judo club and get an absolute kicking but you had such a great group of players come through there um you had yourself who was leading it um you had the likes of lee burbridge dave nichols wayne lake and again all these guys british medalists british champions um well also simon moss and jamie johnson as well yeah of course so um which again just for me personally it just it's nice to have a connection and when you see the success is is really good but yeah it was an interesting time because I felt with a lot of us given Neil's expertise and you know achievements we didn't really achieve that same level um and a lot of us have gone on to achieve that kind of success as coaches which is interesting but I think Neil there's two things really I, I almost felt like we weren't necessarily good enough to work with Neil. Like I remember Jimmy Pedro used to come over a lot and then Neil seemed to switch on and be, this was somebody on his level that he could <laughs> really, yeah. Uh, and I, I, that's not putting him down. That's almost putting myself down to say like, you know, he came along when the likes of Jimmy because he could talk tactics and Jimmy could do that against the best in the world. And he, I, I remember Jimmy winning Paris and Germany and he was living with me at the time. So he would come back and talk about it. He was just so blasé about it, you know. Um, and then Neil, him, the conversations between him and Neil were just a whole different level to the conversations I was having with him, you know. And you just yeah. think, I, I just felt it was a bit of a shame for Neil that he didn't get that, his version of Neil Adams to work with, you know, a Craig Fallon or maybe, yeah, yeah I don't know. But um, it's, so, yeah. It's kind of but, what you're referencing. Like, you're, you developed a, an experience and ability to coach all this different age groups of people and I think yeah um possibly Neil um again my conversations with him very different from the ones you have with players around you like his level of insight you know he clearly would have been or has been amazing for players who are at that level and wanting just to go yeah I mean I was also I I was also very lucky that he was my weight so (laughs) I mean you know when I was senior British champion I, I remember I beat Graham which is great but then I still couldn't beat Neil. I'd go back to the club. I wasn't even the best. Of, <laughs> I wasn't the best in the club in my way. So it was, you know, a bit quite, quite humbling, really. Um, but yeah, I, I just felt Neil was a really good technical advisor. So I, I really couldn't throw for Toffee, you know, when I went there. Um, and he was so precise about what he wanted. Then he spent a lot of time. Now I think a lot of that often didn't necessarily transfer well enough to performance you know it but then in terms of as coaches it's been very useful so um I think that, that gave me a good grounding and then I've been lucky enough to work with 
go Sonada for four years and, you know, Kanemaru and now Ebenuma and stuff. So I think maybe that grounding with Neil enabled me to to know what I needed to know with them and ask the right questions. Um, so, yeah, I just, again, yeah, makes me realise how lucky I am just by all the people I mentioned, really. But, but yeah, I was with Neil for a good 10 years and it's a, it's a long time. Whilst you were coaching there, though, you were still competing. And um, yeah. were you, there was the fight off, and I think in like 2000s for the, I think it's for the Worlds or the Europeans. Yeah, and yeah, um, end up competing against uh, Burbridge. I think, yeah, we, I were you still coaching at that time? How was that yeah. coming up against someone you? Well, actually, it was interesting because he withdrew. So it was, it was for Europeans. And yeah, I was kind of coaching him really. Um and I Sorry, went, hold, hold fire. Just yeah. pause for a second. If you're listening, this is literally just me going, what was this decision that happened 30 years ago when yeah. I was a kid and I was watching? And yeah, so uh, the again, yeah, you were the guys yeah. I looked up to. Yeah, the background to that is that um, I, when Graham won the Worlds, I moved down to the weight below because, mm-hmm. you know, he was definitely going to the Olympics um, having won the Worlds. I mean, that, there was no doubt about that. And he deserved it. It was phenomenal that day. But... Um, I, I then thought, so what do I do? You know, and um, it's pretty hard because I, I was probably the best that I'd been. You know, I was competitive and the fact that Graham was winning the world. Yes, yeah, shows that I was competitive, but but I wanted more than to just be competitive. So I moved down the weight and um, it was an interesting time where British Judo had said, if you win the British Championships, um, you'll go to these World Cups. So it was really clear. Um, and I got seventh at the first World Cup. I think I won four or five fights and um, no, f- won four fights. But I lost to the guy in the repertoire who won Paris the week after. So it was a good tournament, um, which was Bulgaria. But I injured my back um, and I, I just about made it back towards the end. But I w- wasn't in the same form. Um, and so they decided to have a fight off. But the problem for me is that they'd um, they'd said that if anybody gets a top seven place in, they'll go to the Europeans. And if nobody, the British champion will go. And I was the only one that got a place in and I'd won the British. So the fact they then decided to have a fight off, just kind of, it that taught me a really valuable lesson around selections that you can really make people feel that we just don't want you to go, you know? Yeah. And so it's interesting how I'd often make selections for GB and, but it was never, easy I always understood how much they it hurt them and so actually yeah Lee was one of the people I would have fought off against and he withdrew um and said I'm just going to wait to the worlds and I retired after that because I was I was just like I've had enough of this you know I and um I don't think it was biased against me personally it was just a yeah just a scenario where they I know how it works they have these meetings they retrospectively decide a criteria when they've already published one it Mm -hmm. it you know you can make mistakes like that so um so yeah that led to a fight off that um in the end I didn't win either which was frustrating because I think Eric Bonte beat me and I, I what had happened in that fight even which just would never happen now is that um the kit that I'd been able to wear for the tournaments um I'd passed all the regulations but then they wouldn't let me fight Eric in it so I fought my first three fights of the fight off and then against Eric, they were like, you've got to wear a different kit. And I was like, what do you mean? I've worn this kit all day and I've, no, you can't wear it for this fight. We think it's too small. So, yeah, it just, I would, 
I was just in a really negative frame of mind and that they didn't want me to win, really. Um, and so, yeah, I pretty much walked off. My least proud moment, of, like, went over and um, told the performance director what I thought of him. Um, not, not, to be re- not to be repeated now, if I'm honest. Um, and that was it. I had nothing to do with performance. Now. I just walked away from it um, and went back to coaching in my club. And I think... What's interesting for me is that I've had a few moments where you, you just need a bit of a break from it all, really. But I've always my my break from it has always been judo. So it's like I could just go back and coach. So I just went back to Coventry and was really built that up as a club. We, we had our first cadet European medalist and I was just enjoying coaching. Um, and then, yeah, the opportunity to to be a coach came along for British judo. So, yeah, I I clearly all was forgotten, I guess. But um, but it was a mad time. Yeah, I, ju- I just don't think that could happen now. I don't know. Um, yeah, and it, I think there was on the day we didn't even know. It was like, are we going to have spectators or not? And they were like, oh, we don't know. Oh, maybe. So people were turning up. Like, are they going to let us watch? And then they drew the. It was at High Wycombe, so they drew the curtain so people couldn't watch. But then you could come into the dojo. It was really strange. Yeah, it was a, it was just an odd, odd experience. Um, but it, it taught me a lot about the importance of how selections make you feel that they don't want you to win. So, like with, I know with Nat and Gemma, um, they would scrutinise the criteria. And, you know, when it's so close, they're like, is the criteria? Are they going to interpret it this way, which benefits them? Or, and I, so I think, um, I actually think Nigel does a pretty good job at creating a criteria that um is pretty clear i mean there's a few gray areas which there almost always is but um but it's it just highlighted to me just how important it is more than anything else really um because i don't think they had anything against me personally you know it's just i was the four guy at that time i I was the I, i got the brunt of it i guess yeah so you go back to the club you you move into kind of performance coaching you get a part of the uk sport elite sport coaching program like in 2007 yeah like yeah. at that stage are you thinking ahead do you want to be part of the setup in the run-up to london 2012 or is this just another step on your coaching journey no um it was interesting because yeah so i became a gb coach and i applied um for one of three jobs which to which to be a coach in the center mm-hmm. so for me i i think that coaching's always been about the journey like actually all of it's always been about the journey but then as a coach it's the journey with the athlete um and I'd gone to Bath and there were some really good guys there like Tom Reed, Andy Burns and stuff that I thought actually I could work with these I could make some really good role models here that are going to lead the way and promote the sport and I could see how they could in, in the future take the sport forward so there was a bit of a flash forward moment of like yeah I could do something with these so I applied and was successful um to coach at Bath but but then probably within a year the system changed and so then I was kind of moved into being responsible with Kate Howie for the under 21 and under 23 okay instead of instead of just coaching people every day um which is what I love doing I was just traveling around the world and often we got referred to at that time as travel agents where it's like you're they're not your (laughs) players you're you're just taking them away and I was like I totally agree with you. Like, it's really annoying. It's not the job I applied for. It's not the job I want to do. Um, so, and that that time as well, um, there was a possibility of 
UK sport. They, they have a lot of programs, um, but British Judo put me forward, and it's kind of elite coach. It was called elite coach, but um, some of the coaches were already the GB head coach. So like Danny Kerry um, mm-hmm. was was on it with me, and Tony Minicello, Jessica Ennis's coach. And I think probably about of the ten cohort, about six of us coached Olympic medalists. So it was a worthwhile investment. But it just gave me access to more coaches that thought yeah, same yeah. way as me. That what are you doing about this? And you know, so my my understanding of elite performance improved a lot. And the other thing is that they paid half of my salary. UK Sport paid half of my salary, which entitled me to spend half of my time on personal development, um, <laughs> which they would fund. Um, and at the point where I left, they said they'd spent more on me than anybody else. So probably not the best investment they've ever made. Um, but but oh, really man. good for me, you know. So I, I remember um, I was doing performance analysis and they'd bought me dartfish and, and stuff like that. Um, they actually paid for me to go to Beijing as an analyst because I was just a development coach then. So so I went to Beijing as a performance analyst and that was a great experience again because that prepared me for London. Um, so, yeah, again, I just really lucky that, you know, British Judo put me forward um and i just created a development plan that they really liked that they then paid for so i remember one week i did something called the leadership trust where you go out in the mountains and you have to lead people you got tasks and it, it cost five grand for the week you know <laughs> and they paid for it and i was just like i basically created a list of things that they could say well we won't do that we won't do that but we will fund these yeah but they just agreed to it all. <laughs> so, I was, <laughs> so I was just like, okay, um, yeah, that's fine. I'm happy to go and do that, you know. So so I was just very lucky. And I think they did look at it at the end. They changed the program slightly and said, um, we don't know how we're getting value for money for this, which was interesting because by the time you got to London four years later, six Olympic medalists were, were there, including Jess Ennis, you know, who was the face of the games and stuff. So they probably did. They just didn't know it at the time. So it was a yeah. three year course. And by the time we finished it, there was no apparent value added, you know. But I think um, for all of us, I mean, I still see some of them now. And uh, yeah, it, it was great three years. I learned an awful lot. Um, but I learned as much from my peers as I did the the programme, I guess. You've, you've obviously coached a lot of athletes throughout your career, but you've you've mentioned the two that I kind of want to talk about. I'm sure a lot of people want to hear a little bit about it as well. Um, first up, we've obviously got Gemma Gibbons. Yeah. Um, how was that Olympic? It's such a broad question. How was that Olympic qualification period? Like Gemma's at 70 kilos, you know, so she's vying off against Sally Conway. Um, how do you, how do you help her kind of manage the pressure and stress of constantly being in that rivalry um, looking for that Olympic spot? um yeah god that's a that's a good question i i think i mean you'll remember because it was the same for you you know the london olympics it was like a really fast moving train that was rapidly approaching wasn't it you know and so so many things were happening at such a pace that you just dealt with it it's a bit like the pandemic where it was like you don't even know what's going to happen by lunchtime never mind the whole day um i remember with Gemma it was so close with her and Sally and actually you know they're both such good athletes aren't they mm-hmm. they, they yeah, both. Um, and we I you know it was me and Kate it wasn't just me but we talked a lot around what happens if Gemma doesn't go really and so they'd already said to Sally and Gemma 
you um one of you's going to go and one of you's not but actually it's not clear at 78 so whoever doesn't go has got the opportunity to to go to the british open which was two weeks later um because there was a european championships and then just after that if you remember there's the british open mm-hmm. so they were they were sort of saying after the europeans it's done so wh- whoever it is not the highest and that was where the criteria i guess was pretty clear whoever it's not going to be can go the weight above now Gemma was really light i think she was like 72 kilos or something so yeah she i think she managed her, herself quite well i would probably say you and manage more of that than than me and kate if i'm honest because you know he's a he was a boyfriend there now he's her husband and he was also going to the games and she yeah i remember her crying a lot in that first week so it was the week after she wasn't going she was crying a lot um but she really seemed to pull herself together and think i've still got a chance to go here if i won the british open at 78 which was possible so i might as well give that a go before i before i really unravel you know so I think that that chance was just good for her, you know, that she, uh, well, obviously very good for her, but, um, but yeah, it was almost like it was too close that you, there had to be that initial release, but then she had to pull herself together quite quickly. Um, and then she won the British open, obviously at 78 and, um, and was selected. So actually she didn't get to dwell on it for too long, but, um, I imagine, you know, I can, I can only imagine how devastating that is for, for, for London was so intense, wasn't it? For, so for everybody, it's fine preparing a team whilst you're all trying for it. But then when you select a team of 14, pretty much then everybody else in the country is devastated. So you're then wanting to prepare for the Olympic Games and everybody's at their lowest ebb. So actually yeah. that is quite difficult to, to prepare a team in those circumstances anyway. So for Gemma, um, Gemma Kelly and Gemma Howe, yeah, I, I felt we just need to get our head down and work what we can but a, a lot of the work then was done abroad because most of the people that weren't going to the games didn't want to train anymore they were pretty despondent which was understandable um but yeah so maybe if it'd been a little bit longer three or four weeks she she might have struggled a bit more but yeah i think it was close enough to force it yeah that that british open was i guess also the kind of first time i think that um you start to see Natalie Powell. Yeah. I think she, again, she will probably correct me. Um, I apologise if I get this wrong. I think she will have put a, an appeal in to to ask if she could have gone to the games, um, not, despite having like kind of missed the criteria. But I think I vaguely remember there being a bit of dispute around the time about she was the up and coming player in this category. It was going to be her category going forward, and that she should be given the opportunity. Yeah. Um, well, she she had actually um, she actually won two European Cups and the British Open was mm-hmm. a European Cup. So she'd won two. Gemma then won the British Open and was selected on winning a European Cup effectively. So at that time, Gemma was better than Natalie at that time. You know, she was mm-hmm. older, more mature. Um, but yeah, Natalie was clearly an up and coming, um, an up and coming athlete. It was interesting because. I've definitely told this before, but so I I remember having a conversation with Gemma and it was actually about you because obviously I was coaching Peter as well and um, you went ahead of Peter um, and clearly deserved, you know, you you got a bronze at the GB World Cup and I just felt like Peter 
what had happened is Daniel, the performance director, had sort of said, look, if you win the British Open with Peter, we'll send him to Romania and then decide. So similar kind of thing then. And that's not what should have happened, but that's what he'd said. So then when they just made a selection, it just left a bit of taste in my mouth, really, that I was kind of like, you know, why can't we just say whoever's the highest at this point goes? And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you've been injured, but over two years, it sorts itself out. And I'm a real fan of that. Um, and sometimes you will have the best athlete not going because they've been injured or whatever. But actually, everybody thinks it's fair. So if I go back to that original story about feeling hard done by, I just want everybody to know that the selection was fair. So she said we were sat down. We were actually sat down with Natalie. So I'd taken Gemma, Natalie, uh, Megan Fletcher, a couple of others to a training camp in France. And we were sat having uh, dinner and she was like, oh, did you agree with all the selections? And I was like, no. And she was like, you didn't agree with Peter. I said, no, I'm, you know, I, like I just said, I know that you, you, you'd got the result, but do I think Peter was better? Yeah, I do. And she was like, but, but do you, don't you think you're biased? And I went, no, I don't. And she was like, why? I said, because in my selection, I selected Natalie, not you. And so <laughs> Natalie's actually sat there as well. And she's just like looking into her food. Gemma just looked like she was about to burst into tears um and I even at the time I was like I can't believe I just said that but I try and be as honest with them as possible you know and but I actually think that was a bit of a make or break moment because the next day we were in the gym and she she came up to me and she was still really upset about it and she said you do want me to go don't you and I was like of course I want you to go and I was like I will do absolutely everything in my power for you to get a medal you know and I did I was staying up till two in the morning doing analysis and I you know I really (laughs) couldn't have done any more I said but I've got a feeling that you just want the t-shirt like you weren't supposed to go at 70 now at 78 I just think you you know I don't want you to just want the t-shirt I want you to to try and win and um I yeah I probably butchered that a little bit in terms of you know how I actually worded it but it but I felt after that it's almost like she had a bit of a point to prove that she deserved to go or something but her Mm -hmm. I felt like her mindset changed a little bit then, um, which was good for me, as opposed to just, let's just go and enjoy the Olympics. We're there and anything else is a bonus. Those people don't win medals, you know? So I think the other thing is I just found an enormous responsibility to tr- to win a medal with the athletes I was working with. So like Billy, obviously was working with quite a few of you, Luke, and you just kind of, I think all of us took on that responsibility of like, we've got to bring the medals home here. And I, I still to this day think like if we'd have not won any medals at that Olympics, I, I would have rather died than that happened. You know, I just couldn't bear the thought of it. So incredibly driven at that stage by something that was just much bigger than myself. It was just, you know, um, so an athlete going that you talk about the fact that she cried and wasn't going and all of those reasons. It's totally understandable she'd be happy to get the T-shirt, but I just, yeah, wanted more than that, really, for her. Um, and she still went into it as a big underdog in her own eyes. It was like, yeah, let's see what I can do. But she did get a bit of a, a bit between her teeth in the training after that, I felt, you know, and it was like, we're preparing for an Olympics here. Let's give it everything as opposed to let's enjoy the kitten out day. And which you still see, don't you? You know, it's like yeah. it's. The problem with the Olympics is very distracting. So you can get caught up in the fun fair at all that you can forget to do the work at times, you know. So, so yeah, it was that was an interesting one. And what was interesting in terms of 
I, I then later on worked with Nat is that that was one of the reasons why she trusted me because when I said like, I'm going to tell you the truth she was like yeah I know that you tell the truth <laughs> <laughs> so was, that was actually quite useful strangely enough do you know what I mean but um she was like sometimes like with me feel free to hold it back at times you know you don't need to be that honest but um but yeah it's interesting how how that is something that's probably important you know is being honest with them one way or another you know what's what's an olympics like having as a coach having worked with a player so closely like what what was that london experience like like uh, you've talked about staying up till two in the morning to do the prep the video analysis of the players um i imagine that just continues through those last few weeks and then you get the draw and then you've got four or five days of going yeah it's um well i mean you you it's no it's no different to you actually it is different to you i guess is that so like the coaches so we're, we're pretty close really i think um and so we've all got our dreams and what we've been working towards and so when people start to lose which we did at the start you just see the devastation of the coaches but then having to pick themselves up for the next player they, they've got it's kind of yeah all of these moving parts just going up and down and the emotion is so so extreme i guess um the it's a bit of a blur to be honest I, I do remember that I really thought Gemma Howell would get a medal um mm-hmm. and she had in man first fight it was the world champion yeah and um I'm still convinced that I was I remember saying to Gemma this is the best possible drill for you Gemma right you know she's come down from 70 kilos and she's going to be tired first fight um and so if you you're going to have to beat her to win the Olympics and first fight's your best chance this is great news and she was like yeah you're right you know she wasn't she really wanted it and so that that fight was neck and neck and she she did at that time it was like you could leg grab if they came over your back yeah otherwise it was a disqualification and then what a man did that was very clever she came over the back and then didn't grip so Gemma leg grabbed her for a score in the last 30 seconds but then was disqualified because a man hadn't gripped I just remember just being stunned like this is not what was supposed to happen you know I just and that was a really strange out-of-body experience actually um I've not really talked to anybody about but um I actually went home back to Brighton for that rest of that day and came back and I spoke to Gemma who was on not the next day but the day after yeah and and just said look I just need a bit of space um and she was with Ewan who's fantastic but it also lost on that day so yeah. it was a bit like she was trying to comfort you and and that's what we mean with these high emotions going up and down she's preparing to fight but comforting you and who probably didn't want comforting anyway but it, you know something she's got to bear in mind and she just said i'm not going to come in the, the next day i'll just stay in the village um so i went home and came back fresh for Gemma's day really so it was lucky that it was an hour away and i could just get a train not think about the Olympics for a day and then come back like a uh, give it everything. And um Gemma's day just about like it. I mean, she broke her hand, so it didn't all go seamlessly to plan. But there was a momentum to it that you felt that this was going to happen almost, I think, you know. So, yeah, that day in itself was a, a rarity that some days, you know, yourself as an athlete, it just happened. You can feel it and you're like, we're yeah. going with this. Um, but I think when she got to the quarterfinal, just with the way the draw was opening up and stuff like that. So she should have had the Japanese number two, mm-hmm. I guess, in the, in the quarters. 
and she had Bakirk, who was a former world champion. But she could definitely beat Bakirk, I thought, you know. So it kind of the it just went the right way for her. Um, but it is it's a bit of a bubble, it's a bit of a blur at the time where you then step back afterwards and it's kind of like being at a nightclub and then suddenly you're outside and it's quiet. Um, but were yeah. you conscious? Were you conscious on the day? Like, w- was there a point on the day where you started to go, oh, actually, it's on, it's on today? Oh, yeah, yeah, there was. And um, interestingly, I felt really laser focused on the day and I think Kate did as well. But the difficulty with London is that as it was on, people then started coming up and telling her and talking to her and it's like so everybody that's carrying a basket or everybody that's volunteering we're all the judo community (laughs) suddenly got an opinion on what she should do for the next fight and stuff you know and I remember that when she got to the final she came back after the semi-final and I was chatting with David Somerville who you know well and um, she came in and was literally mobbed you know after the semi and he was like, you know, you're going to have to do something about that. And I had to grab her and take her to the other side of the mat and just try and say, like, this is not done. Right? We're, we're in the final now. Like, it's like we're not celebrating now, you know. And in fairness to her, I thought it's easy to think that she didn't do that because she she got silver. But I think she really did do a great job in the final and could have won, you know. But um, it would have been very easy with the celebratory atmosphere that surrounded her to just take the silver but I don't think it was lost at that point it was won by Kayla in the fight as opposed yeah. to um which is credit credit to her really because she she that was beyond her wildest expectations at the time to to get to the final Olympics at pretty much the weight above really you know yeah. I think she, she was still planning on going back down after the Olympics so so yeah she did incredibly well but I I remember the semi-final she had Chimo the French world champion and we'd gone to Romania and Estonia um for world cup prep world cup tournaments and I think you went to Japan actually and I was able to take those girls to to Europe mm-hmm. and she had Chimo in the final and actually Chimo she she could have won that fight like Chimo was so physically strong yeah. Um, and she was sort of dragging Gemma around. But then towards the end of the fight, Chimo started to get tired. And she should have got a third Shido, which would have meant... I think Gemma had been thrown for a couple of Yukos at that stage. And then she should have got a third Shido, which Gemma would have won that fight. And I remember the French being like, don't worry, it's fine. Because they were a, they were in a training block where they were so fatigued that they were like, it's fine. You're so tired that... Um, it's inconsequential but actually Gemma was in the same block and so Gemma was equally tired and so in my head I was like I know how tired you are because of working with Patrick I knew the French periodization model yeah but ours was very similar so I knew that Gemma was at the same stage so therefore if this is where they are when they're both really fatigued when they're both fresh I I kind of used it to Gemma to say like you're you're going to be the same so this is possible this fight's winnable and then I think because Chimo was the current world champion and Gemma was coming up from the weight below, Nigel Donnie, who was our performance analyst at the time, and um, he was working with um, the French analyst. And they didn't even bother to watch any of the footage of Gemma. They didn't do any, <laughs> they didn't do any analysis. They were just, yeah, so they just didn't take her seriously. 
And I just thought that really gives us a chance here, like, you know, because I'd done so much analysis on Chimo, you know, and we'd done so much strategy work and stuff like that, that the fight that she won there, I mean, it was opportune because they were very slow to give Cheetos. And in a normal contest, Gemma probably would have got a few, but the crowd kept her going. And so we knew in London we were going to have a crowd that, just cheered whatever you did because they didn't understand judo so it's like if you attack first they'll just cheer because they don't know yeah so yeah. so that crowd kind of cheered her on a little bit but as soon as it got to golden score i actually thought she had a better chance of winning than chimo really i kind of thought there's a good chance here um and there's a you talk about your great moments of your career there's a, when i watch back the fight um because we talked about the tactic of hitting the front leg and then coming across and the moment where she hits the front leg is like I jump up half a second before the rest of the crowd. So you can see it on the you can see it on the video where second she hits that leg the first time, I'm already up, and then the crowd sort of comes up behind me. Which is when you look back at that now, you realise just how much we'd worked on things, you know. And and that was kind of the only way she could win that fight. Um, but yeah, I mean, she actually went out and did it, which is everybody has a good idea. So it's like, is it Mike Tyson's? Everybody's got a plan until they get punched she in the face. In the face yeah. and, um, I remember her saying that when she was in the, the tunnel with Chimo, like Chimo was very powerful and she was growling. <laughs> Gemma was talk, turning around to Kate, like fearing for her life, basically, you know. <laughs> um, and yet still able to go out there and put in a performance like that. So I think it was a it was a once in a lifetime moment to be part of, really. Um, and. I mean, how many of us are going to get a chance to be part of a home Olympics again and stuff like that, you know? So I think we were all really clear on that at the time, weren't we? How lucky we were to to do that. But but yeah, it just it felt like it would happen almost. It felt like it as the day progressed. Are you are you conscious of that like when you look at the draw? Because I'm assuming you look at the draw a little bit earlier than maybe Gemma, or is it something you do together from the off? I think with the Olympics you can't not look at the draw. Um, I think I kind of feel that my job always is to find the positivity in the draw. So with Gemma, she, she had um, uh, the Mongolian to, to get into the quarterfinal. So mm -hmm. as a non seed, she was going to have to beat one of the world top eight to get to, to get to the quarter. So she had the Mongolian, which was one of her best chances to to get there, you know, um, and that was a really tight fight. But it's kind of like so for Gemma, you'd be saying this is a great opportunity for you. You know, you, you could have had the best in the world. You've got the world number seven. This is perfect. Um, so so that was really good. Whereas with Gemma Howe, she did have the best in the world. And you're like, this is the best opportunity for you because she's coming down from 70. You know, so I think it's fine. I. I kind of feel you you should be ready to beat everybody in whatever order it comes. Um, but it's our job to to make them believe, isn't it? I've, I've yeah. been reading a lot now that I've moved into academia, more in your realm around self-efficacy. So people talk about having confidence and you can't just say to them, just believe in yourself. Like that doesn't work. But what you can do is give them absolutely concrete examples. that If you do this, this and this, you can win and that's self-efficacy really it's like okay like I don't have to be better than them I just have to do these things and if I do those things well enough I'll win this fight you're like yeah that's it then then they've got self-belief because they know what they've got to do to win so mm -hmm. 
I kind of think let's not get too far ahead, but for every single opponent, one, we would have that kind of self-efficacy model of these are this is what you're going to have to do to win that. And they're going to be really clear on that. But then we also need to have trained all of those things so that they know they've got those skills. So it has to be they've got the skill to do that. It's their self-efficacy. It's not just efficacy like this is the way you beat this person. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think I always like to know the draw the second it's out because um, it enables me to start thinking, like, how do I spin this to the athlete to make this the best possible draw? I remember Tom Reed said to me at the Europeans once, he was like, how's the draw? I was like, oh, it's a brilliant draw for you. He was like, you always say that. You always tell <laughs> me I've got a brilliant draw. I'm like... Well, I do always think you've got a brilliant draw. <laughs> it's like, you know, but but he was like, he's the only person who's ever called me on it. Everybody else, actually, Natalie, towards the end as well, I was like, oh, this is such a great draw for you. Um, but I also think, like, if there's somebody they're struggling with, I'm really happy if that's their draw because judo's about mastering what you can't do currently. So you're not going to master it by not getting on with it and, you know, fighting with them. So... I often see the difficult draw as the the good draw because this is the real challenge for you. And if you beat these people, you know you've definitely deserved it. So there's always a way of spinning it. Maybe I should have been in politics as a as a spin doctor. But uh, but yeah, I just think let's see the opportunity in it. Really, love that. Um, did you after that semi final have to pick yourself up? Obviously, you've talked about kind of helping Gemma kind of refocus or the, the job that she did. But again, like this is the first medal for GB yeah, in the Olympics since 2000. Like, are you aware of being distracted or elated or anywhere, anything to take away from doing your job? Um, That's a great question. If Yeah, I think there's a massive sen- sense of relief, you know, um, definitely. But I just didn't want Gemma to have any regrets. Uh, I just and I I don't think she could have because she did do a great job in the final. It was interesting where that night, like not surprisingly, I couldn't sleep. You know, I just lay there looking at the ceiling like <laughs> what just happened. And um, and then I went to breakfast the next morning and Karen Roberts came over and she she was like big smile. She was like, how are you feeling? And I was like, yeah, I was like, it's just, I've just realized that that's uh, probably the one chance i've ever got to coach britain's first gold medalist and uh, <laughs> and and she looked at me and she's like oh yeah i was like <laughs> and i'm like of course so yeah at the time like relief and elation and come on let's not stop here you know almost the a line i've used a lot i used it actually with natalie in the um she won the last Grand Prix that I did with her she beat Aguera in the semi and then she had a Israeli in the final that she'd lost to last time and I was just like look we didn't come this far to only come this far you know and I think it's it's that isn't it like yeah we, we can now be happy that we've definitely performed well today but why would you get to here and then not be ready for that moment I mean we didn't prepare just hoping you know it's like so the good thing is then when I've had that experience with Gemma, when I'm then working with Nat, who became world number one and stuff, they're the sort of things that help. So I remember with Natalie, she was close to becoming world number one and I, she hadn't won a tournament in that cycle. So she's incredibly consistent, you know, world bronze and um, master's silver, some really big medals. 
but not gold. And I was like, you do realise, like, you're going to be the first world number one that hasn't got gold in two years. Like, this, like, I don't even know if you should be proud of that. And so, in that, in the Grand Slam that she she became world number one, she won it, you know. And um, so, so she she beat that was Bekirk as well, but she beat Bekirk and Steenhouse to to win the gold there. But it's just about yeah reframing it for them isn't it so it's like because they can be really happy with silver of course but you've got to find a way of reframing it to to direct them that we're here to win you know and so so yeah I think with with the Olympics I've got no regrets for her there I know that she she went out there and did the right thing it's interesting because I mentioned Jimmy Pedro earlier and I went up to him before the Chimo fight um and obviously Kayla's on the opposite side in the semi and I was like what do you think about this and like all great coaches, he simplified what you had to do so well. He was just like, it's just simple. Just stay like this position. Just keep hitting this leg. And then after three minutes, she's gassing. Like, he's like, you know, and it was so simple. And I was like, that's a, a more simplified version of my strategy, but it's the same. And then I remember for the final, I was like, what do you think we should do with this American girl? And he was just like, I'm out now, you know. But it was it, it was kind of a nice moment, but also a bit bizarre to think like, you know, you got Kayla there and Jimmy lived with me for a while and you're looking across and at the same time as I'm gutted to not coach an Olympic champion is somebody I know well so so yeah it's all a bit almost incestuous isn't it I don't know you know it's just it's funny how those things go full circle you know and stuff like that um but yeah certainly you learn a lot from those losses I think and uh, that allows you to prepare for the future but also that allowed me to have conversations with Nat about what it's like to be the best in the world um, with credibility, as opposed yeah. to, I would imagine it's like this, like, well, last time, you know, this was the scenario and you can yeah, talk yeah. through those things. So that helps as well, which I, I imagine the the great coaches like Billy, you know, or Mark and stuff like that are able to bring that credibility when they're working with athletes that you kind of, it's almost like, well, I should definitely achieve this because that's what, they do you know it's like yeah yeah the athletes they you must have experienced that like the athletes they work with do go to the games they do win medals so you feel like you're almost obliged to do that I guess but there's certainly a credibility with it that it just helps you know so so yeah um a lot of things I've not really thought about for a long time here James (laughs) but uh no it's so interesting um I'm conscious of time and there's so much I want to ask you so I'm I'm sorry I'm gonna fast I'm gonna fast forward. Uh, we come out of the games. You've you've talked about there not being another home Olympics, been very unlikely in our lifetime. But what we do have, and what we've had now, is two home kind of Commonwealth Games. Yeah. Um, that you have either coached or been, you know, uh, yeah, major no, player, chief exec at. Yeah, you... coached it both. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I was team leader at the last one. Um. Which I loved, actually. Um, very different. Like, so the Commonwealth Games is referred to as the friendly games, I think, which I kind of agree with. It, it's a it's an odd experience for me. Certainly Glasgow was a really odd, odd experience because Gemma and Natalie fought in the final. So I'd been coaching Gemma. And then I decided quite a long time before London that I would finish after London. Um and it was a bit of a shame because Gemma's last tournament would have been the Europeans and she'd just won the Germany Grand Prix. 
um, and was the first Brit, I think, to win a Grand Prix because the, when the system had set up and stuff. And I think she would have won the European. She was in a really good place and got injured. And that would have been our last tournament. So we were a little bit robbed of that last chance. And then a year later, um, I was asked if I'd be interested. Like I was paid as a consultant to coach for Wales. Um, and I think they were just really desperate for Natalie to get a medal. And obviously I knew the weight category well. And um, yeah, so I ended up coaching against Gemma in the final, which was <laughs> it was probably one of the worst experiences of my coaching career, I would say. So Nat is such a good person. I, I don't know. It's just I, I will always want the best for her. Um, and she's probably the favourite person I've ever worked with, like in terms of we worked together for eight years after that. And it's the longest. Um, and I'm, I'm just always proud with her. Also, just the way that she like the way that she deals with defeat is better than anybody else. She's so magnanimous in how she loses. It's actually the thing I'm most proud of. Like it sounds stupid, but like she lost to Emma Reed in the final of the Commonwealth Games, and I was devastated for her. But she and she's devastated. But I'm 100% sure she would have gone and congratulated Emma and said, "Oh, well done. You did really well today." And you know, um, and she controls those emotions much better than I do. And I kind of feel that that's actually what I want is to create better people that's what we're supposed to be doing is like helping people be the best version of themselves so that's where I'm most proud of her actually I mean her performances on the map everybody's seen and it's easy to assume that's what you're most proud of but actually it's the person that she is when she loses that I'm kind of like actually if I'm to coach again this is what I want it to look like it's you know um which is not always the case as you know <laughs> like when we lose we we don't want to talk to anybody like I said I went in <laughs> Went and told the performance director exactly what I thought of him, you know, when on my last fight. So, yeah, that fight there, Natalie beat Gemma. And it just, um, I think Gemma had been coming back from injury. I think it probably affected her a lot that I was coaching against her. Um, and originally I wasn't supposed to. So I kind of agreed with the person who had asked me to coach for Wales that um, I wouldn't coach against Gemma. And then they stepped down from the board or something I can't remember the exact thing so, so they left and I the person had an agreement with that I wouldn't coach against Gemma um effectively I was then in a position where I had no choice but to coach so I remember telling Gemma that and I I don't think it went down too well but I also kind of got the feeling that she was like is he just trying to is this is like gamesmanship or something you know so that's kind of definitely not the way I would would want to leave things with her as well so I'm really fine for the best person winning. I just wouldn't want it to win because of a reason like that, you know. Um, and I, yeah, I'd be surprised if it didn't affect her. Um, but ultimately, yeah, the Commonwealth Games gold for Natalie was a big deal for Wales. It was their first gold. Um, and then, yeah, she kind of went from strength to strength over the, the next few years, really. So she's, I mean, Wales hadn't had an Olympian for over 40 years at that point. So for her mm -hmm. to now be... Double Olympian, world number one, world medalist, I think three or four world masters medals and stuff, you know, it's and I think more IJF medals. She's actually in the top ten for weight categories, men and women, for the amount of IJF medals won from Grand Prix and above. Um, which is just phenomenal, isn't it? It's you know, and it's um just like everybody else, she has her doubts and she but but you can yeah she's some competitor really so I think for me going back to that whole journey bit the journey with Nat I've been able to really savor because you have all these experiences and then like we've 
Gemma kind of well I probably like I said that was my chance I'll never have these experiences again mm-hmm. and then with Nat it started really well but then when I was CEO it kind of didn't on paper it doesn't make a lot of sense for the CEO to be coaching um, and I get that but at the same time I think certainly Nat felt and I probably do feel the same as well that there's just a really good connection there that we're very aligned in our thinking we're both I think I mentioned this to you before we started, but we're both kind of, we're just very inquisitive of trying to find different ways of doing things and we're very open. And so she's really receptive to me trying to new things and mm-hmm. okay, let's try this way. Um, and I kind of think that she felt it wasn't going to work with, with anybody else. And ultimately what I wanted to create was within Wales is that this great champion, who's also a great person that people can think people can realize that it's possible in Wales to go all the way through the system and win a world an Olympic medal. So I set a really ambitious target of Wales's first Olympic medal and stuff like that, which she didn't achieve, you know, so that's clearly now all her fault, but, um, <laughs> you know, but, but, but she is a really aspirational person. And then um, there's, you know, with her coming out and realizing she was gay and stuff like that, I think her story is just brilliant really as is, as is Gemma's. Um, they're great role models, you know, for people to realise that they're real people that had real difficulties that to to be with her and help her kind of get past that was, um, yeah, it's just nice now. But she's in such a good place, you know, um, and yeah, really good competitor. But there's loads of kids in Wales now that would that see that as a it's journey. Their life. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's the best bit, really. It's like personally, it's great to have that relationship and that journey. But the important bit is the fact that all these kids can see a, a pathway for them you know so that's that was kind of I don't know if it was just my justification that you should let me coach here because then we can we can create this great champion that kids will aspire to but that's definitely what happened you know um so I'm proud of that and then I think with Welsh Judo as a CEO I really wanted to take it back to what's the purpose of Judo you know is to create better people and I kind of feel when I we had a tagline of like, um, this is judo. So whenever anything positive happens, they would hopefully use that tagline and really reflect on the values a lot. And I I feel that that's there as I step away. um, That really resonates that within judo and Wales, people see the value of judo. So that was kind of my aspiration when I went in really, as opposed to, I want to achieve this or this. And I think that, Nat was key to that. So, you know, without her, I don't think those things were happening, really. There's so much there that has touched on questions that I've got. Um, I'm going to drag you back to that kind of 2014 to 2016 period. And again, like you, you just were speaking about coaching Natalie early stages of your relationship with her. And, and we know what it's gone on to be mm. and the success it's been and the sounds like you've had a, a great relationship um but that kind of two-year period up to Rio where you are coaching Natalie Gemma's kind of moved up to Scotland they do fight each other several times during that period like again how do you as the coach who's you moving know, between yeah. these players like manage that and you, I, when you talk about that first instance at the Commonwealth Games you're clearly like uh, people haven't got the cameras but you've got uh, there's a discomfort going because you're not that comfortable with it but you know it was what was happened at the time yeah it was 
even now, yeah, you reflect on that 2014 and it pains me really, if I'm honest. You know, it was such a big moment for Wales. And if I look back at Glasgow, I felt really proud to pull the tracks on then. But at the time it was, you know, I, I actually felt like I didn't deserve to, to be part of the Welsh team. Like people really earned this right. And they brought me in at the last minute, predominantly to coach Nat, which went well. But I'm well aware of the honour that it is to pull on a national tracksuit. And I don't know if I felt that I deserved it. So there's all this celebration around that that I kind of felt like, even though I'd come in at the last minute and facilitated it, yeah, wasn't I didn't feel part of it enough in the same way that I would do later on. Then over the next two years, so yeah, Gemma had moved to Scotland with um, to be with Ewan and the National Centre in Dartford had closed. Uh, and I probably, the truth is, I didn't manage that bit that well i try i guess i tried to make it really clear to to Gemma that i'm with i'm on nat's team now um and there's a few things that yeah i don't know i just it's yeah. it, it's it's you i think i think this was before we started recording you're talking about how important the relationships in judo are yeah, and exactly. and there yeah. you've I think you don't what, want I to be competitive was, but what was difficult for Gemma I think is that so she she's English and moved to Scotland so she was traveling around to do these um Olympic qualification on her own without a coach because you're the Scotland coach and stuff so I, I would imagine that she had pretty good support when she was in the center you'd know better than me around that but but then she's there on her own and I'm there with Nat and it again it I couldn't help but feel sorry for her really that Nat's got her coach and she's working these things out. And so often on training camps, she she's working it out for herself. And um, that was quite difficult to see. But I actually think she came out of it really well. Like, I think she was probably better for having to do that. It was just quite difficult for me to see. And I remember there's two moments. I remember saying to Kate Howie, Kate, we used to invite Kate Howie down to our multidisciplinary team meetings where, you know, you've got and we would do a review and um, for the European Championships. And this was probably to show Natalie how much confidence I had in her. But I was like, can you ask Ewan if Natalie and Gemma can fight off five times in one day before the Europeans? And um, Kate was like, why would you do that? I was like, because just like that level of confrontation will be so much harder than what they'll have to face at a European Championships. Mm-hmm, that, um, whoever, I don't know who will come out of that. I hope it's Natalie. But whoever comes out on top on that day can win the Europeans, I think. And um, And so Nat was sat next to me when I said this. And so this is around building confidence for her. Afterwards, she was like, I don't want to have to fight Gemma five times in one day. And I was like, I was like, of course you don't. I was like, but I'm, you know, actually, it would have been really tight. Who knows? But, I, you know, to her, I was like, but you'll beat her five times and then you'll be ready to be European champion because that would be much easier. And she's just like, you know, it's kind of those moments where there's benefits of working with me, but there's also some downsides as well. So I don't know how if that was even fed back to um, Ewan and Gemma because Kate was pretty dismissive of it. Like, we're definitely not doing that, Darren, you know. But it gave Nat confidence that I believe she would win five times out of five, I guess. Mm-hmm. So there was a benefit there. And then I also remember we were discussing um, and I felt like my relationship with Gemma, my, 
my relationship with you and has always been really good but with Gemma it was really quite respectful but difficult is how I describe it you know and I I try and make it more personal telling them about my kids and stuff like that and you know because those sort of things as opposed to judo but then there was a time where I really felt like I messed up that um I'd been discussing with Nigel the the final preparation for the Olympics so it could have been Natalie or Gemma whoever would go and it was a year before the Olympic Games and I'm saying that I've got a final preparation model that would mean that Natalie couldn't leave until no no sooner than nine days before because of when we finish. And so I've seen Gemma and I was like, have you spoke to, you know, to Nigel about prep? I'm like, he said that we have to do this, but he knows what I'm like. And I, I was just talking as if Natalie's definitely going. Like, and um, I saw her face change. But I just was not socially intelligent enough to stop there almost. You know what I mean? So I was just like, what? Like, yeah, I don't know. But part of the problem is in my head, Natalie is definitely going. Like, And so I'm so used to talking about the fact that. So when Gemma got a Grand Slam Tokyo Grand Slam bronze, that probably put her ahead. In fact, like Nat was still ahead on points. And I was like, oh, no, Gemma's definitely ahead now. Nat. Like, she just got a Grand Slam in Tokyo. She's definitely ahead this is the best thing that possibly could have happened. She was like, why? I was like, because now you're going to have to get a medal in Paris. Like, if you don't get a medal in Paris, you're basically accepting that she's ahead. So she was really pissed off about that because she, in her head, she was like, well, I'm ahead on points. So I should still be ahead. I was like, I think Gemma's ahead now. So um, she beat Gemma for the ones in Paris, which kind of, I guess, put them, put them back. Um, but I just remember that moment in Gemma's face shifted really and I kind of yeah I'd reflect on that and go of course I recognize Gemma could have gone as well but just in my head I'm preparing for Natalie to go and to expect it and I think yeah there was a moment afterwards where she'd probably correct you and say she can't even remember that I don't know you know but it was just not very self-aware I suppose is how I would describe it and um, if I've got regrets it's around that because yeah I don't know I would I would always want the best person to go and the person who deserves it to go um I just need to make sure that that's the person that I'm working with but when it's not which has been several times you know I've worked with, with loads of people that haven't been the one that's got to go that's fine you accept it and you you move on but um so yeah I I when when we see each other it's fine but it, it's not close like it was is probably how I would describe which I guess after after eight years with Nat kind of understandable isn't it but it for me at least it doesn't doesn't take away from what was achieved at London so there's a, a great quote that I always think of Gemma that people are like people will forget what you said or what you did but they'll never forget how you made made them feel and I think for me with London it's like yeah that was just a feeling that I'll only ever experience once in a lifetime you know because I, I even said that to now it's like even if you become Olympic champion probably won't be as good as that feeling because it was in the home Olympics and the pressure we had on and I kind of got to a stage where probably with Nat towards the end my biggest fear is that it didn't mean enough to me like you know I was saying at the start I know with athletes like they would die the next day if they could win an Olympic Games like as a coach I definitely felt like that in London but I didn't feel like that again after and so if you ask me why like I'm happiest when I'm coaching but when I look at like likes of Jamie, like he just got that 
Eye of the Tiger or what, probably it probably yeah. isn't since Eye of the Tiger. He's still got that glint in his eye that I feel like I haven't really got. So I was always very conscious with Nat in the in the later years that I, I was just open about that and just you know does that mean that she can't achieve it? Of course not. But for me personally, it's just not quite the desperation. I guess is how I'd describe it. Mm. Love that. So Natalie kind of goes on to become this you know uh, yeah incredible figure in British judo but also a really central part of um what you're trying to create in Welsh judo as well um I don't know again I get confused between the conversation before and after the recording starts like were you aware again working with her that she would go on to be this role model I think at the start of her career she she was she was a good junior she was a pretty good cadet but um she maybe didn't have the kind of stellar Um, background that you think for someone who becomes world number one yeah no I think do you know what I one of my biggest skills is I think I can see people's potential you know so a lot of the time people can only see what's in front of them and so I often look at them and think well if you just change this and this like they're going to have so much more success and so I feel like I'm pretty good at seeing what skills they would need to be pretty much in the mix to at a world level, um, which often isn't even that much. You know, mm-hmm. you know, like you think, um, oh, yeah, we've got to be brilliant at everything. The best players in the world aren't brilliant at everything. You know, they're, they've just got one or two things that make that they can beat everybody with. Um, so taking it back to what I said earlier about the likes of Tom Reed, it wasn't just about the fact I could see her potential as an athlete I could see that and actually Craig Ewers had done a really good job she she was pretty well-rounded I could see her potential as a person to be the role model that we needed if she was successful and that's what made it that's why I think I was like no we need to do this because I could see how much of a good person she was how natural she is in front of a camera you know she she just I don't even know if she's ever told a lie. She's like that kind of person. It's just naturally <laughs> really honest. Um, so you can just sense the goodness in her that I think has to be aspirational for people. Um, I remember we, just the media work we would do would be almost like a de- I would debrief her media. So there was one time with the BBC and they were like, so what's your favourite sport? And she was like, netball. That's <laughs> <laughs> just wrong. Afterwards, I'm like, right, listen, I like your favorite sport is judo because judo is develops you as a person. There's a whole community. And, <laughs> and so I would explain the values of judo and I'd be like, so when people ask you, like, what is it about judo? You, you've got to be. I said, because people don't listen to me as the CEO is what's great about judo. They listen to you. I was like, you're the voice of the organization, not me. So we would spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, but the truth is, I talk about creating better people so often that she really believes it, you know, so many because I really believe it. I do think that, that one of the reasons why I'm quite happy if people want to be uh, try and be an elite athlete is that I think it helps you to be the best version of yourself. You have to be so dedicated and train so hard. You have to unemotionally debrief what just happened. That That's pretty much the best version of yourself, you know, and so we've got this whole pathway here around learning and the, the reason now you know with my coaching is that I'm coaching with my kids is that 
my my job as a parent is to prepare them for the world and the best way I know how to do that is through judo so I'm like actually I'm happy to step back as a CEO and just go back to coaching because I need to spend the next six to ten years preparing my kids um but yeah from Nat's point of view I could see I could see the potential in a judo it seemed pretty clear to me what needed to be done um but then also I could see her potential as a person that this is the role model that Welsh judo needed and I, I think actually she'll be really missed like I don't know who will replace her um but yeah she certainly exceeded my expectations or hopes in sort of that area is probably how I'd describe it that's amazing um and I'm gonna get like really you've just given this incredible answer and I'm gonna go oh but what about this so and it's really really specific her incredible performance 2017 worlds um she beats China Canada she loses to Japan um and then she's in the repercharge as a coach, yeah, do you look at the refer charge at the time and do you feel the parallels with London, knowing that Chimea, who withdrew, and then yeah, the so, Kirk? Uh, yeah, do you know what? Yeah, um, it's interesting because, thing, you know, the system changed with GB, so I wasn't always allowed backstage with Matt, um, but I was on that occasion. And what was interesting is that I felt I made a really big mistake in Rio that everything was about winning gold. Um, and so I don't think Nat believed that she could beat Harrison. And mm-hmm. so that was a sticking point for her. And then when she lost, um, which was also to um, Chimio, and she probably would have beat Chimio if there hadn't been a blood break. But when she lost, she did not pick herself up for the rapper charge at all. Um, and I took a lot of responsibility for that. It was my fault that I wasn't talking about Yeah. We want to win the gold, but on the flip side, if we can only win bronze, well, that's fine, you know. And it, she would be more than happy with that. But I think that was my fault. So the world's the next year. We were in the yeah. She had Chimio, and I remember saying to her like Chimio did pull out, but I don't think she was that injured. I uh, I just think so. What I said to Nat, I was like, right, we are not leaving here today without a medal. Uh, so, kind of you're going to be the first person on the mat, the warm-up area. And I want you running around the mat whilst everybody else is still chilling out, just letting Shimio know that you are going to kill her. Like, you are just so up for this. <laughs> that there's just nothing standing in your way. And I, I don't know if you've seen, considering how nice a girl she is, I don't know if you've seen Nat's face when she's got her war face on, but I don't want to fight. <laughs> you know, she's kind of like, she really looks up for it. So she was like, right, okay. And so she's just started running around the mat. And you can see she's like growling to herself. And like 10 minutes later, Chimio pulled out. And um, and I just thought, so actually people would go like, oh yeah, no, Chimio will do it. But she won that fight. She won it in the warm-up area before, um, before they stepped onto the mat. The only downside then is that um, you got a really long time before you fight for the medal. So yeah. it's like two hours of being like revving your engine ready to walk on for that bronze fight so she then had the kirk for the bronze which it was interesting because i knew with if you watch the fights between Gemma and the kirk and natalie and the kirk i can say this now because the kirk's retired but um they always beat it with ouchi and so mm-hmm. part of my focus would be that um 
the curve goes both ways. And when you, the problem with going from left to right all the time is that you become square at some point. So if, if as they're going from left to right, you hit them with Ochi, they're wide open to be thrown. So I think we were really clear on what the tactic was for the Kirk and what her vulnerability was. Um, and actually pretty much, I think Nat's always thrown in with that as did Gemma. So it's probably about five losses there for the Kirk that were all Ochi Gary. Um, but yeah, I just think on that day, that's probably the best I've ever seen that fight. It was well, no, there's a couple, but that was definitely one of the like top three of a bronze fight against Vakurt, where she really delivered the performance that we talked about. Um, and again, it goes back to that self-efficacy. Like instead of being like, you can do this, you can be a world medalist. It's like if you if you get her sleeve and you push it across, and you just keep throwing the arm on, so she squares up. And then you pull her on and bring to you. She's going to be trying to stand up. You've got all the time in the world to Ochi. So if you watch Nat's fights with her, she just does that constantly. So it's it's that clarity of tactic that mm-hmm. it's not about being better than her because Rakurk's been world champion. She's got four or five world medals. So it's, she's not an idiot, you know. But I think Nat just had an absolute clarity that this is how I win this fight. It's not it's not about being better than her at judo or whatever. It's just I just need to do this. Um, and I think as a coach, nine times out of 10, I'm very good. It's just seeing the weakness in the other person and overlapping that with the, the strength of the person I'm working with. So it's like, what what are our strengths and their weaknesses? And that is that that overlap. That's where I want the fight to take place. So with Rekirk, it would be you've got the sleeve and you're pulling her head in and bringing to you. That's where we want this fight. We don't want it to be that she's on the lapels and she's turning both sides you know, because then that's a fight that only she can win. So it's kind of, it's understanding that really. But yeah, as a coach, then you need to make sure that the athlete, that's all they can see in the world. There's no other distraction. It's the only thing that exists is the Kirk sleeve and pulling her head in, you know. And if you do those things, you know, she happens naturally. So, so yeah, it, it felt a bit similar to London. I think they often do, you know, but then there's plenty of times where it's definitely on today and then it goes wrong right at the last minute. <laughs> so so yeah but um yeah she definitely deserved that as well you know so for her to have not been a a global medalist would have been wrong somehow I guess so yeah so yeah it was good and it was again good that I was there on that day and then again moving away from coaching and you've just finished as chief exec of Welsh Judo for the last eight years um you've you've mentioned it already the some of the amazing things that you've uh, achieved there like you got the first Commonwealth Games gold medalist you've had the first Olympian in in 40 years we had the world number one I think uh, participation in the sport massively grew in Wales like in the time you've yeah. been there you've brought two absolute legends of Japanese judo to to Wales uh, to coach during that time are you was this part of a strategic plan are these things you set out to do at the start or, or how how much of this was part of a strategic plan and how much of this has kind of fallen into place along the way um i think i think it was you know we were very well planned um what i would say is so when i started at welsh judo i did a lot of reading around kano and the purpose of judo and probably really opened my eyes a lot really because you think you understand judo because you've done it all your life but when I thought well it's my responsibility to make sure that people that are delivering judo understand the purpose of it 
So I think I mentioned earlier about the this is judo tagline and the social media and just really trying to go back to like just how great an experience and product that judo is. And trying to make sure clubs are really aware of their responsibility to deliver on that. So that was that was always like the North Star is, is how I would describe it, really. So you see opportunities. Um, and whilst judo, I've got an amazing chairman at the moment, a guy called Mark Longhurst, who also was a judoka to cadet level, British level. So he really gets it. But he's also like a um, strategic, strategic director for Atkins Global with 800,000 employees. So like in terms of strategy, just my ex- the level of expertise I could draw upon went through the roof, you know, and um, what a fantastic chair Welsh Judo have got. But what he said is that we should have a strategic plan that if, if it's not in the plan, why are we doing it? Because we've got mm-hmm. enough to be getting on with. Um, but when you're really clear on what you're trying to achieve, opportunities come along that you realise like this, of course, fast tracks us. So at the same time, with with the Japanese, pretty much that that comes back to two things I would say really one is relationships and me having good enough relationships with people that could bring them over and they would have confidence enough that they'd be looked after but it's also around from from our perspective the fact that the Japanese have learned how to live their life through judo and that's what you see so we've certainly with um Masashi Ebonuma at the moment Wow, I just, I'm just blown away by like the greatness of the person I'm with. Whenever I meet him, like he's so humble, but everything almost re- relates back to judo in terms of how you should treat people. So he's quite happy to do his master classes as long as he has a cultural experience where he goes. So he's like, you know, I really want to expect, I, w- I really want to share my knowledge with the world. Um, and so one of the reasons why I'm voluntary coaching now is that I just think. I've always charged for everything I've done in judo or been paid in some capacity, but I just really inspired by the fact that he's open to share and just feeling that 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 is the purpose of judo is creating these win-wins. So like for him here at the moment, rather than just thinking, Oh, we've got this potentially great coach. My focus is on creating an experience for him that he will remember for his life, you know? So I told you before we started that he's coming over for Christmas dinner. So I want his kids to know what Christmas day looks like in the UK, you know, with the presents and we'll be making gingerbread houses and his kids are pretty similar age to mine. So, you know, that can work. And, but, and, but in Japan, he told me that they usually have KFC on Christmas day and you, <laughs> and you just spend it with your partner. Like you don't have these big family get togethers and stuff. So I'm really happy to, to share those moments with him and for him mm-hmm. to get an insight into our culture um but on the same time like, i i get to geek out and ask it like they're one of the best players in the world ever like all the things i wanted to know so like, when he so that's important because because i was the ceo there's a seniority that comes with that that shows him that if i'm doing that for him we recognize how important he is so he can't just go anywhere you know it has to you know you kind of need your most important person to to treat them with the respect so i couldn't bring them over without probably freeing up about a third of my time to mm. to look after them and, and to prioritize them. So it's kind of like if something goes wrong, I'm there. You know, so the first weekend he was here, his son got this vomiting bug and I spent six hours in A and E with him. Oh, but no. it let but it let him know that he was important enough that whatever it needs, I'll be supporting him. And I think that was probably quite valuable for him. But 
on that first day, because I'm going to jump straight into the judo question straight away, I was like, so, you know, um, won three world championships. I was like, what's the secret to that? How how do you become the best in the world? Uh, I'm not talking about just being a world champion. And he said, well, it's quite easy. You, um, I spend all of my time doing what I can't do. So I was just like, but it was really quite profound. I mean, we're just sat in A&E and using Google Translate. And stuff. <laughs> but then the son's being it, sick in the background. Yeah, this, what was this son's vomiting and stuff like that. You're like, and I thought about it, I thought, well, actually, like like you said earlier, you know, I'm a good judoka, but how much of my time did I spend still doing the things I knew I was good at? Probably 80%, I would say. And actually, if I was fighting somebody that I couldn't deal with, it's easier to avoid, isn't it? And keep doing all the things you're good at. So he actively seeks out the things that he's not good at and keeps doing them till he can. So he saw being the best in the world is mastery that everybody's going to try and stop him. And his job is to be able to overcome what they throw at him, you know? And I just thought as a, as a starter, that was a great, great question, you know, just um, cause yeah, they're, they're the best in the world for a reason. It's not just, so one of the things I'm interested in now, we definitely won't have time to talk about today, but you know, moving into lecturing and skill acquisition, but I'm really interested in anticipation and decision making. So what we look at is that the best in the world are usually pretty much the same in terms of physicality and technique, but it's their ability to anticipate and decide that mm-hmm. makes them better. And the conversations I have with him really makes me think that that's true. Like, you know, just just by like because he's so technically efficient, it buys him more time. But actually he makes the best decisions um, and he exposes himself to things over and over. So he gets to practice and find solutions to it, you know? So, so yeah, it's, it's been lucky, but I just think what better opportunity to show people how, you know, the value of judo than to bring over people that really get it. So I remember with, um, like you said, we had Kanemaru over who coached Nagasi and Ono um, to Olympic golds at the last two Olympics and um, I would have coffee with him every week. And what I said is I want every member of staff to have coffee with him once a week. So his English improved and you can talk to him about whatever you want, because then he's having to talk on a lot of different levels. So Tom, our operations manager would basically just be having a laugh with him and they had a great relationship and stuff like that. But I would just geek out on judo. So I was just like, I went there and I was like, so I've been reading about Kano and um, Kano had three levels of judo. So the first one is to per- per- perfect yourself and the next, you know, um, and then, you know, you're developing, um, living your life through the values of judo and you're, uh, you, you know, I was like, does this mean it coaching because you're then developing people through judo? Is this the highest level? You know, and I'll be having these conversations and he's, off the bat prepared to discuss them and stuff like that you know so I think just because I was such a judo geek they probably appreciate the fact that this guy loves judo as well and I was trying to promote the values of judo so rather than just trying to improve the technique of judo across Wales is like this guy understands the purpose of judo and is trying to deliver on that and I think that is something that then obviously Kanemaru would recommend for um, Masashi Ebenuma to come over and stuff like that but but it all comes back to relationships and my level of being a geek about judo and just wanting to know everything about it um, so yeah I'm still I'm still halfway through that journey really and, um, and enjoying it but but yeah I mean what an opportunity to to bring people like that to 
just to the UK, never mind just Wales. Um, so, so yeah, I, again, I just, it's not lost on me how lucky I've been to have those conversations um, that other people can't have, you know, so, yeah. No, I love that. Um, I'm aware of the time. And yeah, sorry. Out, so I know I apologise for, for keeping you so long. Um, you've moved on from Welsh Judo. Was that a easy decision to make? Were you ready to move on? I'm, I'm sure it yeah. carries some kind of like... Uh... No, I think, um, do you know what? The, probably the best thing for me is that every time I've left, like when I left Coventry, when I left British Judo, when I left Welsh Judo, it were always my decisions that I'd made probably a fair bit of time beforehand and people didn't really believe me. So when I'd sort of said, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to leave after that. People would be like, what? Like, what? And they'd just be like, no. And so then, you know, that would happen. But I, I think with Welsh Judo, I felt um, the impermanence of it all. It's not, I don't forget that. So I'm always aware I'm not going to be there forever. And so make the most of it now. Um, and so with Welsh Judo, I'd probably been thinking about it around the time of the Olympics, around how do we transition well, you know. So for me, I recognised that the best time to do it was post-Commonwealth Games at the start of a new strategic plan. So then I'd worked that out in my head, but then I spoke to Welsh Judo chair, Mark, who I'd mentioned eight months before so we had eight months of announcing it and it's pretty clear the relationship's still good because I'm there for the next eight months to help transition the next CEO in and stuff like that as well so I was probably I probably felt like I was ready after Tokyo I just didn't feel like it was the right time for Welsh judo until post Commonwealth um so yeah it, it wasn't there's was nothing wrong it was just it just felt like it was time and I'd done as much as I could do I guess um the other thing is I had a really good mentor um, when I was an athlete, um, a guy called Brian Perryman, who was Neil Adams's coach as a, a kid and stuff, or ran Coventry originally. And I only really knew him as judo, but then once I chatted to him a lot, we spent a lot of time together. And he was in his 70s and I was in my 20s, but we got on really well. And he'd done so many interesting things, like he'd moved to Coventry to help design the car that Sterling Moss broke the land speed record world land speed record in and stuff and um oh, he'd, wow. been, he'd been an archaeologist and he'd done all these things that I didn't know about and he sort of he said at the time like life should really be about chapters and it's like rather than thinking I'm just going to do this one thing for the rest of my life he's like you should have a chapter and just live that chapter to the fullest mm-hmm. so what strangely for me then when 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 he passed away his funeral he had all these people from the chapters that yeah, I'd heard all of come together come, and they spoke about him so affectionately and I kind of thought two things one people are never going to speak that affectionate about me at my funeral but but two what a great life this guy's led so I think for me I kind of see things as chapters it's like I've had my CEO chapter I've had an elite athlete chapter I've had an Olympic coach chapter which I feel incredibly grateful for, but I also felt that I didn't kid myself that this is going to go on forever, which meant that I will try and do the best I can when I'm doing it. And so now I'm in an academic chapter, but actually the skills I've learned, they, you know, they all cross over and ultimately I'm judo through and through and everything that I'm learning in academia just relates back to judo in terms of how I make sense of it. Um, And then probably the, the biggest reason is that my kids are now at an age where I want to be able to 
do judo with them and coach them. And so I really admire, actually, I don't know if I should say this on recording because he'll hear it, but um, Fitz <laughs> or people like that have that journey with people. I think it's phenomenal. Joe Crowley is another person where you see, you know, the way Joe Crowley has used judo to develop her kids is something I thought was incredible um, because that's what it's for. So I, I think this part of the journey I'm on now is like, okay, yeah, I'm learning more about um, skill acquisition and coaching. Um, I'm able to articulate it really well to the students because it's predominantly a sports coaching science degree. But, you know, with the experience I've got as well as the theory, it goes well. But actually now, I feel like I've actually got judo back. So you, you messaged me and went, now that you've left judo, I was like, I haven't left judo. I'm, you know, <laughs> I've, I've finally got it back for me. So previously, judo was about making sure that everybody understood the value of judo and like, please promote the value of judo because it's so much more than we're portraying it as almost, you know. Um, whereas now I can just enjoy it again. So I'm coaching for free, at, you know, in Cardiff and my kids are doing it with me and they're not, getting coached by me they're getting coached by somebody else and stuff but I'm optimistic of this journey that I just think the best way I know to develop my kids is through judo so they're at an age now at 12 12 10 and 7 that yeah they, they can start doing judo and for once like you know your dad's always an idiot isn't it so there's an area here where they might think I'm not such an idiot which is also a, a benefit but I I just think yeah I've got to prepare them for the world and the the best way to do that is through judo. Love that. And then I've, I have got one last question. Like <laughs> we've talked about a lot of athletes, and we could have gone down a route of influential people in your career, and uh, you've you've touched on lots. But looking back, what what are some of those key moments? We've we've talked about results. But I suspect from how you've talked, from how we were talking before mm-hmm. the show. So, what are some of those key moments from judo that you so far, you know, that yeah, you look back on and go, actually, that was. I mean, I mean, there's the obvious ones, which are like the medals and stuff. I think. um, I I think Natalie, look, seeing just how Natalie carries herself and, you know, the response that she gets and the way that she inspires people. That's that's a really nice moment, if if I'm honest. But in terms of personal things, it's interesting because so Chelsea Giles started judo with me I think like when I was running commentary she would have, and I remember her brother doing judo and she used to sit at the side of the mat really bored like <laughs> literally she could not have looked more bored and I remember saying to her like you know it's probably less boring if you if you join in and she kind of looked like I'm not so sure <laughs> um but yeah so so kindly coaxed her onto the mat and there was a really nice moment in Tokyo where because that was obviously the first medal for GB as well um so Simon Moss who, who's a who I handed the club over to really who took her all the way through to Jamie who also I'm close to so to see her win that medal and I was me and Mossy were messaging the whole way through after each fight and stuff like that that was a really special moment because I knew what it would mean to the club. So I just had these flashbacks to all the people in the club and how much it would mean to them. So that was really nice. Um, and then there was another moment from Coventry where I remember once like these two kids, pretty obese. Um, they were like two brothers, 13 and 14. They'd just got expelled from school and their mum had brought them to judo um, at Coventry because 
they were out of control. And they, I remember they used to run around the mat and they'd start fighting. They couldn't get more, a bit like you and your brother, to be honest. <laughs> they couldn't get more than halfway around the mat without fighting. Um, but judo really changed their life, I think. And so I remember coming back to, it was not even that long ago, I guess, and there was a black belt on the mat. And he came over to me and he was like, do you remember me? I was like, yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. And it was one of these kids. Oh, no, right. And he, and he was like, you really changed my life. You know, he's like, if it hadn't been for judo, um, I was getting expelled. And he said, actually, because I wanted to be like you, because I was British champion then and in pretty good shape. And he was like, I just wanted to be like you. So I lost the weight. And, you know, I remember giving him a, a diet. to. It was a, an exercise. And I didn't give him a diet like eat this. It was like, you need to drink two litres of water a day and you need to have one piece of fruit and it, but basically he just developed good habits and the weight yeah. fell off him and he said by the time he got to sixth form he was no longer that this perception of you know the fat kid or, or whatever um he went to university and got a first and he was like none of that would have happened if it wasn't for you you know and you sort of go they're they're the moments that it's actually yeah, about yeah. you know what i mean it's like so so it's great i mean that's the thing like the you almost think that your job descriptions or your job titles are what people remember. But actually, the truth is, like, none of that really matters. It's it's the moments that you've created both for yourself and for others, I think. So I actually think that that last one is probably my highlight. You know, somebody coming over to me like in his mid 20s and told me that I changed his life because you're just like, well, actually, really, what gets better than that? You know, so. So, yeah, that's probably the highlight. Darren, it's been amazing chatting to you, listening to the stories. It's been so fascinating. I'm sure we could have gone on for another <laughs> yeah, hour I know. or so. I have, I have that feeling um, as well. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. You've you've moved into academics. You've talked about skill acquisition. Um, I'm sure that means you get involved in the inevitable Twitter uh, melee at some point. If Maybe. people if people want to follow you. Um, I don't know if you tweet a huge amount, but if people want to follow you, have you got a handle or you're not? Yeah, no, um, I think my Twitter handle is create autonomy. So, yeah, it's quite easy to find. Um, but, yeah, like you said, I'm not not a huge tweeter. I do try and avoid the um, the Skillac. Uh, well, you're only a few months in, so. Yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah. But I've been avoiding them for years, but, I, yeah, we'll see. Darren, it's been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much, yeah, mate. Cool. Thanks. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed that. I found it absolutely brilliant. Um, all the usual nonsense. Uh, like, subscribe, share, blah, blah, blah. Catch you soon.